Good afternoon and, and welcome to the Atlantic Council. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Frank Miller. I'm a, a member of the board here at the Council and the principal of the Scowcroft Group. We're all very pleased today to have the opportunity to um, hear from Stephen Lofgrove, who is the permanent secretary at the Ministry of Defense in London. Um, Stephen became the, pre the uh, permanent secretary in April of 2016. Prior to that, he was the permanent secretary for the Department of Energy and Climate Change and had a distinguished career before that, both in government and in the private sector. For those of you who don't know, the, the, the permanent secretary is the government's principal advisor on defense and has responsibility for policy, finance, and planning as a departmental accounting officer. The, the principal, the, the, sorry, the permanent secretary sets strategy for defense, including corporate strategy, he heads the Department of State and the MOD Civil Service, and the overall organization, management, and staffing of defense. So for those of you who are Americans and, and don't understand that you can actually, as a civil servant, rise to very senior positions and have real authority, you're seeing someone who actually does that in, in London. We appear to be approaching a crossroads in the history of the transatlantic relationship, or so the pundits would have us believe. We're seeing proto-nationalism in many NATO and European countries. We're certainly seeing proto-nationalism in Russia and an aggressive sense of, of trying to assert itself throughout uh, the European space. We are seeing renewed efforts in the United States, the United Kingdom, to make large defense companies more responsive to both cost and schedule. And all of this is occurring in the midst of a great challenge to the rules-based order which emerged from World War II and underscores the importance of alliances. And it is in this context that we're going to hear from the Permanent Secretary. I've been asked to do a paid public announcement before he comes on, which is to say that for those of you who are, who are here and those of you who are watching uh, on computers, please join the conversation by following at AC Scowcroft and using the hashtag pound special relationship. And with that, I give you Stephen Lovegrove, the Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Defense in London. Well, um, thank you, Frank, and I'm delighted to be here at the Atlantic Council with such a distinguished uh, audience. I'm going to talk today about Britain's place in a rapidly changing world and offer some thoughts on the implications uh, for us all. But before that, I should perhaps um, begin to build on a little what of, of what Frank talked about in my rather archaic title of in fact, fully permanent Under Secretary of State, which doesn't really translate very well into American English. Um, I don't need to tell this audience that there are um, some important differences between our constitutions. Uh, an example from 1962, President Kennedy and Prime Minister McMillan, Harold McMillan, in Nassau, with the main business of Polaris out of the way, fell to talking of other matters. The president asked the prime minister how his budget was going. Fine, thanks, said Macmillan. No trouble in the House of Commons, asked the president. No, 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 replied Macmillan. We just write the budget, throw it over the wall, and the majority approves it. Well, said Kennedy, wonderingly, anyone could run a country like that. Uh, so, Another distinction, though, is that virtually all of our ministries are led by secretaries of state who are also members of parliament. So the members of the cabinet and the handfuls of more junior ministers who support them in leading their departments interact with their fellow parliamentarians nearly every single day. And everyone below those ministers is a career official. We have no political appointees like in your system, although I am aware right now that you have rather fewer than you're used to. We always have only a very few political advisers, and a handful in the Prime Minister's office apart, political advisers can't issue instructions to civil servants at all. 
The role of the Permanent Secretary, as Frank outlined, my job is to lead the department as it supports the government of the day. I'm the principal policy and management advisor to the Defence Secretary. I work in close harness with the Defence Secretary's principal military advisor, the Chief of the Defence Staff, the CDS. Day, day by day, I run the department. The CDS gives strategic direction to operations, and we come together to try and make it all add up. Together, the CDS and I are the defence voice at the National Security Council officials' meetings, and we jointly chair the Defence Strategy Group. We jointly lead integrated teams of career civil servants and military officers working jointly, and that is an absolutely key characteristic of our system, and that is one of our most enormous strengths, and one I suspect that we don't make enough of or talk about enough uh, in, in, in public. As Frank says, I was an investment banker for a very long uh, period of uh, my career. I don't expect um, any sympathy as a result of that. But I can say that from that vantage point, and also from the vantage point of not um, seeing uh, uh, the defence for a huge amount of my career, that the, the strengths that we have in the UK system um, have served us incredibly well and will continue to serve us incredibly well in the future. I could discuss the civil service in Parliament for a lot longer, but it's time for bigger things. It's traditional to be begin um, these discussions with threats and challenges. I want to instead briefly mention some positives. The UK is the fifth largest economy in the world. We are a uniquely connected nation with alliances and partnerships the world over. We are the most trade-dependent member of the G20, and we consider that a strength. And the language of Shakespeare remains the language of commerce, of diplomacy, of society the world over. We are second only to the United States, States in, its, in our technological base, and by that I mean human, academic, and industrial. The UK is uniquely well positioned to deliver 21st century defense and we continue to be the home of some of the greatest high-end manufacturing companies in the world, and more on that later. We spend our money wisely. We've increased investment in defense at the same time as reducing overall government spending. We're proud to meet the NATO target of spending 2%, 2.21%, actually, of our GDP on defense. The government is committed to increase defense spending by 0.5% above inflation in each year of this parliament running out to 2020. And we are also proud of spending 0.7% of our national income on overseas development aid, reducing the risk of future conflicts. In fact, we are the only country in the world to hit both that 2% NATO target and the 0.7% overseas development target. We remain an outward-looking nation. As the Prime Minister said in January, the UK is and shall remain a secure, prosperous, tolerant country, a magnet for international talent, and a home to the pioneers and innovators who will shape the world ahead. The British government reaffirmed those spending commitments alongside publishing our Strategic Defence and Security Review, SDSR, in 2015. We're proud of that strategy document, both in the ju judgments that we made, many of which have proved perhaps regrettably prescient, and in the progress we've made since delivering our, our objectives. I don't need to rehearse, and I won't rehearse, the increasing challenging, increasingly challenging global security context for this audience. But briefly, our SDSR concluded that the UK defence and security needed to respond to four main challenges. First, the increased threat posed by terrorism, extremism and instability. Second, the resurgence of state-based threats and intensifying wider state competition. Third, the impact of technology, especially cyber and network issues and wider technological developments. And fourth, the erosion of the rules-based international order, which makes it harder to build consensus and to tackle global threats. Some of those challenges are very much as they were in 2015. We have found no magic bullet to fix weak and failing states. 
We know it takes decades of toil, treasure, political commitment, and sometimes blood to develop economies, democracies, and resilient societies. Even as we deny them safe havens around the world, we know that the ambitions of Daesh, Al-Qaeda, and their like to sow poison and mayhem have not diminished. The UK is committed to playing a leading role in the global counter-Daesh coalition, contributing all the arms of government, economic, diplomatic, development, and defense. But some things have changed. Most notably, the threat from state actors has crystallized in more ways and more rapidly than perhaps we anticipated. As the Defense Secretary set out in his recent speech at St. Andrews University, we have a very clear-eyed view of Russian behavior. Alexander Litvinenko was murdered on British soil in 2006. In 2015, the annexation of Crimea and the shooting down of MH17 in 2014, then its intervention in Syria, all showed how Russia had become more aggressive. But 2016 saw a further step change in Russian behavior. It is seeking to expand its sphere of, uh, its sphere of influence, destabilize countries, and weaken the alliance. It, weak, it, it seeks to weaken today's international rules-based system, to write a new set of rules on their terms and reflecting their values. We are responding as an alliance to dissuade and to deter, and also to engage. As the Prime Minister has said last week, we stand ready to engage with Russia, but we are beware. The scale and breadth of those challenges, their speed of change and some, of, some other events, not least the UK's decision to leave the European Union, lead some distinguished and siren voices to suggest we need to rewrite our SDSR. We disagree. We got those threats right, and we built a robust and flexible plan to take them on. And as you all know, rewriting a strategy is an excellent excuse to avoid executing it. But that does not mean that we should not constantly test and adjust our planning. Indeed, it would be a grave error to do anything else. And when we do that, we need to remember the guiding principles of SDSR, which are to be international, innovative, and integrated. And with your forbearance, I will unpack those in turn. We decided to make our defense policy and plans international by design. Our armed forces have almost always operated alongside allies and partners, and, and first and foremost with NATO, the strongest military alliance the world has ever seen. NATO knows what it must now do. It must deliver greater resources, most particularly from member states who are not yet meeting the 2% target. Efficiency is not a substitute for commitment. We need both. With resources, NATO must also reform. NATO has begun that journey, and the UK is determined to lead the effort. Today, NATO has embarked on a new defense and deterrence posture, including the enhanced forward presence battalions deploying across the Baltic states and to Poland. We have a greater focus on our higher readiness forces, and we are starting to develop new responses to hybrid threats, nuclear blackmail, and cyber attack. But we now need to press the accelerator. The institutions of NATO shape, act, the Joint Forces commands, and so on, all need to play a part in the transformation of NATO to a genuinely agile, flexible organization, one in which we can have confidence that can respond quickly enough to those who wish us harm. Such an organization requires NATO to be adaptable and responsive to the changing environment. We must therefore strive for an alliance that is less bureaucratic, better at prioritizing, more capable of taking difficult decisions quickly. We must empower NATO's senior military commanders to draw on their professional experience and insight to prioritize and resource the most pressing issues for its member states. Enhanced resources and effective reform in NATO need to be married with a restored sense of relevance. If we are to carry our treasuries and our taxpayers to renewing their vows to NATO, then NATO must demonstrate through action that it contributes to tackling all of our national security challenges, including terrorism. That contribution to counterterrorism needs to be broad-based, embracing operations but also capacity building, partnerships, awareness and intelligence. One final word on NATO. 
and that's to recall two of the most important words in the Washington Treaty, North Atlantic. NATO is not an organization solely about European security. It is an alliance for Euro-Atlantic security, including the US homeland and the waters in between. We have perhaps grown too comfortable considering our shared ocean as safe, somewhere we don't need to worry too much about. That is wrong. If it ever was, it is no longer a benign environment. It is becoming again a contested space, and we must continue to work together to protect it and the trade and communication channels to which it is home. Now that's a point I could explore in other domains as well, not least space, but perhaps we'll save that for another time. NATO is the first and most important part of an international response, but it cannot be the whole answer. Against ever more complex problems, we must bring together military and non-military responses, and that means making the most of the agreement at Warsaw last year to reinvigorate the strategic relationship between NATO and the EU, including cooperation on cybersecurity and boosting counter-hybrid capabilities. The UK is today a significant contributor to EU missions around the world. We are leaving the EU, but we remain committed to European security, and we will continue to be a supporter of the EU's efforts to contribute to international peace and security. And we will continue to advocate within NATO and with our European partners for a mutually supportive relationship between NATO and the EU, which is in our and all others' national security interests. Finally, our international emphasis must include our most important bilateral relationships. I don't need to walk this audience around the extraordinary scope of the UK-US defence relationship, but it is worth dwelling on a couple of very conspicuous examples. Sometime in the 2030s, HMS Dreadnought and the USS Carolina will undertake their respective first patrols. They will each be the first of new nuclear deterrent submarines, responsible for providing the ultimate guarantees of our respective national security against the most existential threats. At their heart, each of these classes of submarines will carry Trident D-5 missiles. The warheads are national assets for both of our countries, as are the firing chains to launch them. But the missiles are taken from a common stock. A missile coming off the production line doesn't know if it is destined for a UK or a US submarine. And when those missiles are lowered into the submarines, they will be stored in a common missile compartment, identical in the US and UK submarines, which has been developed by our two navies and our industry partners. Just dwell on that thought. Our respective ultimate guarantees of sovereignty, our last lines of national defense, national warheads, national firing change, all born on a common fleet of missiles, all holstered in a common missile compartment. No two other countries in the world trust each other enough or have the raw engineering abilities to do that. Another example. We've agreed that the US Marine Corps F-35 Joint Strike Fighters will fly from our new aircraft carriers, HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Prince of Wales, on their first operational deployments. It will be another potent, unmatched demonstration of our depth of our commitment to each other and to working together to respond to threats to our shared security. That relationship and that commitment starts at the top and the recognition of the historical and future joint endeavors by our respective defense secretaries is transparently and powerfully genuine. Our partnership on the F-35 program provides us both with an unmatched fifth generation air capability. It also provides us with considerable industrial and economic benefits, and there can be no defense without a sustainable industrial base. Today, UK and US companies constitute a single defense industrial base. British Aerospace Systems is a US company. Lockheed Martin is a UK company. We should recognize and celebrate and build on that reality, delivering a truly two-way street for defense procurement cooperation. You all know that innovation is the day job for any tactical or operational commander. It's the day job for our engineers and laboratory staff laboring to create new capabilities to keep us safe. It's the day job for the defense industry seeking to provide capabilities we need at prices that we can afford. Innovation is foundational to everything about defense. 
The UK is good at innovation. We're number three on the Global Innovation Index. And yet with hindsight, we can see that this has too often in the recent past been despite the actions of government rather than because of them. We became comfortable with the idea that we would always have technological superiority. We thought that stealth and precision munitions would last forever. And we missed early on the extraordinary opportunities that cyber would present our, our opponents to do us harm. So innovation is the second strand of our strategic response. The UK is not precisely pursuing a third offset strategy of the sort that Deputy Secretary Work has so eloquently spoken about in the last few years. Our ambition instead is to fundamentally change how we go about our business in pursuit of military advantage now and in the future. We also recognize that today technological innovation happens primarily in private enterprise rather than in government. So we've established the Defense and Security Accelerator to bring novel ideas from individuals and companies without previous defense experience in faster and more easily. That is something that we can learn a lot from the US in. We recognize that the world changes faster, so we need to invest in horizon scanning because the lifespan of any capability advantage is going to get shorter and shorter before something new comes along. And so together with the Home Office, we have set up the Innovation and Research Insight Unit, better known as IRIS. We know that these things cost money, so we've established an 800 million pound innovation fund to support suppliers with great new ideas in bringing them from concept to capability. And we know that inside the department, we need to be held to account for innovation. So we have appointed a defense innovation advisory panel led by the former chairman of McLaren Technology Group, Ron Dennis, to advise the defense secretary, drawing on the UK's world-class capabilities that we have in so many sectors, technology, cyber, encryption, pharmaceuticals, robotics, material science, to name just a few. And we are doing all of this internationally including cooperating deeply with the DOD to bring new technologies into defense. Our final guiding principle, alongside international and innovation, is that integrated challenges call for integrated solutions. You will know how Russia in particular is using all of the levers of state power to pursue their interests. Russia's hybrid model demands a whole of government response. Ten years ago, we recognized that many of our security challenges were coming from weak and failing states. So we established a stabilization unit, originally with staff from the Ministry of Defense, the Foreign Office, and the Department for International Development, to take on those challenges in a holistic and strategic way. Today, the stabilization unit brings together two members of the armed forces, police officers, and civil servants from 12 government departments to continue that mission. Today, we face state-based threats too, which demand different structures. For example, we brought together some policy teams in the Foreign Office and the MOD, and in my old department from the Foreign Office and Energy. Today, there is one joint unit for Euro-Atlantic security policy, one team led by one official, reporting to two secretaries of state. We need less conventional relationships too. Once, we could go on operations confident that the homeland was secure and resilient. We were an away games department, after all, tackling threats at range so that we don't have to at home. But in today's conflicts, there is less and less distinction between home and away, and indeed between peace and war, and we must respond to that reality. So there are the three planks of our strategy, international, innovation, and integration. They are not a panacea. Their identification itself will not deliver a lasting peace, but they can guide us as we review and adjust our plans sensibly, strategically, safely to a changing world, including the destabilizing and aggressive actions of Russia and other states. And separately and together, these principles remind us in the UK how important it is to take on our challenges in harness with the United States. We think alike, but we are not the same. We deeply understand each other but we can still offer a different perspective. There is no other country that can play the role of the United States in the rules-based international system. And there is no closer US ally than the UK on the U UN Security Council or anywhere else who can help you achieve your goals. There is no other country whose technology sector can drive the kind of innovation NATO now requires to deliver 21st century defense. 
and there is no closer US ally than the one whose Tizard mission in the Second World War brought you the first radar that you could fit on fighter aircraft, the designs for the first jet engine, and the blueprint for the nuclear bomb. Our people work together, train together, study together, deploy together, fight together, and die together. Military and civilian, government and industry, they are the very best of their generation. Across all that we do, we have been, we are, we will remain the very closest of allies. We face a more challenging future. We have a plan to respond. Let us do so together. And with that, I'd be delighted to take your questions. Let me begin, Stephen, by thanking you for, for those remarks and for underlining the special relationship and indeed for embodying it in, in, in your presence here. Let me begin by asking you um, about Brexit. We hear a great deal since June from self-serving people suggesting that Brexit means that, that the UK basically opts out of European defense and that this requires a separate European defense identity. You touched on this during, during your prepared remarks, but if, if I could, I'll ask you to say a little bit more about that, that allegation. Uh, it is an allegation which has been made, and I, I have to say it really could not um, be further um, from the truth. Um, we are leaving the European Union, and I don't think anybody should labor under the misapprehension that somehow that will not happen, but we are profoundly European. The UK is part of Europe. We cannot, you know, tow ourselves into the middle of the Atlantic and pretend um, that we're not. And I, I do think that um, the idea that uh, the uh, European Union is going to um, somehow re recreate the kind of um, protective umbrella that um, NATO has been capable of providing over the last um, 70, 80 years, I think is, is, is n nonsensical. If I look at um, the enhanced forward presence uh, missions which are all coming into action uh, this year, um, those are all in um, members of uh, the EU, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. They are all there to guarantee and be ultimate guarantors of, and, and really tangible symbols of um, how NATO guarantees uh, European safety and security. And if we had left already, three of those missions would be led by non-EU countries. It would be the US, Canada, the UK, I mean, I think that is a sense in which, um, of course, the EU is very important, but the um, interconnections between our various uh, countries go much, much deeper than that. And anybody who imagines that somehow or other um, leaving the European community is, um, is going to change that, I think has really got it profoundly wrong. Right. Thank you. As I sit here, I see the image of President Trump on the screens out there. Let me, let me ask you a bit of an unfair question, which is, to what degree do you think the, the President's call, echoed by Secretaries Mattis and Tillerson, for European members of the alliance to increase their defense spending, has had any resonance, that it will have any effect on defense spending in, in, on the continent? Well, as a matter of fact, I think it probably has had quite a lot of resonance. Um, uh, it is a subject of uh, conversation, probably not in the, um, you know, not in all of the saloon bars in uh, across across Europe, but certainly in places where it hadn't been a proper conversation, um, and it has become so um, in the last um, few months, really, um, and in particular, I think that. Um, the Secretary of Defense's um, comments about uh, Europe um, needing to show as much commitment to the people of Europe 
as America has done, have resonated extremely powerfully from somebody who has been a former supreme commander of uh, NATO. So I think it has made a difference, actually. Um, the UK has, was one of the original authors of those, um, uh, of those kinds of commitments. Um, but we are glad that they are having more um, bite now uh, than perhaps they have hitherto for. I mean, I do think there will be a moment coming up when um, we need to think quite carefully about what 2% means mm -hmm. for each of the members of NATO. Um, there are certain elements of spending which certain countries may choose to um, uh, 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 do which will be more helpful than other parts of spending. And I think we need to fairly soon get into a more granular um, discussion about where those, um, where, where, those, where those points of difference actually are so that NATO as a whole can operate in a, in a more sort of kind of holistic way with the right level of capabilities and skills but you know let's let's concentrate on the head mark of two percent and let's also not forget the 20 percent of um, expenditure on equipment as well i mean that is a really important part of those uh, commitments that again we wouldn't like to see um wouldn't like to see missed right well let me let me turn to the audience there faces I recognize. Um, let me, there are microphones on either side and um, when I call on you, would you please stand and, and at least identify yourself uh, so that we all know who's asking the question. Stephen knows particularly. Harlan. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I would like to get your advice. Harlan Altman. Sorry, I'm Harlan Altman with the Atlantic Council. So Frank, thank you. Um, it was not entirely clear what the Obama administration's strategy was towards either Russia or the Islamic State. It is even less clear what the Trump administration's strategy is towards both. As you know, the Obama administration's first defense priority was the ability to deter and, if necessary, defeat Russia in a war. But when you asked that question to Ash Carter or Joe Dunford, you really didn't get much of a firm answer. So in terms of our overarching strategy, what do you think the tenets of a strategy towards Russia ought to be? And how do you think we ought to be addressing the Islamic State in ways that perhaps we're not doing now? Um, I think that the approach um, to Russia is going to be uh, manifold, and I will pick out some of the uh, points of it that uh, the British government feels um, strongly about. I'll leave uh, the American uh, government to develop its own uh, policies. Um, the invasion of uh, Crimea and the annexation of Crimea um, was the first forcible um, seizure of land in Europe since the Second World War, and that is not something that um, can be forgotten likely. So the UK uh, government is uh, committed to keeping uh, sanctions and other restrictions on uh, Russia for um, as long as it takes to rectify that uh, position. We don't uh, want to go to a, um, you know, well, it's a fait accompli and move on. Thank you very much. And I think that is uh, the view that um, uh, most of our um, European allies hold firm to as well, and I hope that um, the new uh, American administration will, 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 will stay the same. Um, I think we do um, w want to engage, in fact, actually with Russia. I think it is important that uh, the lines of communications are open so that we can understand how their doctrine is, is evolving, and it has evolved a lot. Actually, it's evolved quite a lot more than NATO's and the Wests um, have, and I want to make sure that uh, nobody would ever accuse um, uh, people in the West of uh, falling into the trap of miscalculation or not understanding where Russia is uh, coming from. So I think I mentioned what the Prime Minister said about engage but beware. I think that's what we are doing. Um, my uh, colleague, the Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, went over to see his colleague um, last week, in fact. Um, in order to make some of those points um, and to uh, generate a conversation there. Um, our Foreign Secretary is going over to meet um, Mr. Lavrov uh, fairly, fairly soon as well. So we are committed to engaging, but in a very measured and wary fashion. Um, and I would say that um, n n 
you know, NATO um, is um, principally there in order to um, ensure the stability and security of the North Atlantic and Europe to a certain extent, but certainly the North Atlantic as well. And the biggest threat to that is Russia. So I think Russia, uh, that NATO needs to be configured quite clearly to be able to meet that threat. So this is not a aggressive posture. It needs to be a defensive posture, but we do need to make sure that it is properly configured um, for, for the threat. Um, in terms of uh, ISIS, um, I, I think we can see uh, sufficient um, uh, progress on the ground now to feel confident that that ground war um, will um, be uh, one and one relatively soon. The task then will turn to, I think, um, making sure that upstream interventions don't allow for the resurgence and export of that kind of violence in the future. So I talked a little bit earlier on about the 0.7% that we spend on international development. Um, you know, there is no, there, it's for sure that we need to think very, very carefully with our colleagues in the Foreign Office and uh, international development as to how we can best direct our efforts, our money, to um, make sure that this scourge doesn't reappear. Um, trying to exterminate absolutely every single last element of it to the exclusion of looking beyond, I think would be probably a mistake. Rose, please. Thank you. Chris McNulty from Applied Futures. Um, you spoke about the various threats that we're facing and called them hybrid threats and said that they require hybrid responses. Do you interpret the American view of the gray zone, which is partially hybrid, partially unconventional warfare, as being similar to what you call the hybrid threats? And also, you mentioned your stabilization unit, which certainly contains a lot of different organizations within the government. Do you see that as perhaps the start of a whole of government approach? I mean, you, you mentioned that it's quite small. But do you see that as the start of a whole of government? And do you think that we should be doing something similar? Um, uh, so is, um, is the hybrid threat, which and I know this is slightly hacked, in a sense it's slightly hackneyed, is it the same as those gray zone threats? Yes, it is. I mean, that is how we are thinking about it. Um, uh, our understanding of... Um, uh, doctrine is being developed by some of our potential adversaries, um, as I say, is I think in some ways rather more advanced than ours. Um, we are intensely aware of some of the things that um, we might be confronting when we deploy uh, to uh, Latvia. Um, we had recent, um, obviously we, we know what a bit of the playbook looks like as a result of the Ukraine Crimea. So, I mean, yes, all of these things are are very, um, are very much within the uh, scope of what I was talking about there. Um, certainly the Ministry of Defense doesn't have all of the answers to that. Um, we have actually been spending quite a lot of time uh, picking the brains of other departments, for instance, our Department of Culture, Media and Sport, because the, um, the communications challenge and um, propaganda challenge is something actually where um, I think we recognize that we, we don't have all of, the, uh, all of the answers. So that is where a whole of government approach certainly seems and needs to um, be applied. On the stabilization unit, yes, there's absolutely no question about that. Um, I think we can see in a um, whole host of different places, sub-Saharan, Africa, um, uh, you know, Bangladesh, where, many, many um, places around uh, the globe. Um, uh, threats emerging which are not susceptible to um, straightforward uh, military intervention or um, military advice. Um, and uh, we are absolutely committed to um, building up those uh, joint units such that they don't feel small, they do feel um, uh, the, the go-to places for for, um, for, the, for the subject matter they're dealing with. I mean, the one that I dealt with when I was at the Department for Energy and Climate Change was in fact the whole of that unit 
in my department and the whole of that unit. They were both obviously doing the same things there, um, in the Foreign Office, put together and working together. It was put together just before the oil price collapse, actually. And um, the uh, value uh, and utility that the whole of government got out of it as a result was very, very meaningful. It was a very, it was a very good example of, 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 of um, the practice actually coming, uh, coming good. Whether or not it is um, uh, a model that um, America uh, should follow, um, I'd, I'll go out on a, I'd be a bit surprised if it didn't make sense for you to pool what I suspect may well be duplicated resources occasionally around the uh, plot to make um, the whole you know, greater than the sum of the parts. I don't know how easy or difficult that is to do in institutional terms. I'm not naive on that uh, front, uh, but if you can do it, I think that we have certainly seen real advantage from it. Yeah, with an understaffed government right now, it'll be interesting to see. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Paolo von Schirach, president of the Global Policy Institute on a slightly different um, uh, geographic area, Iran. Um, does the UK, your government, believe that the nuclear deal reached by the Obama administration is still the best thing that could be achieved? Uh, and uh, kind of conjoint to that, do you see the, any of the expectations of the Obama administration that tying up Iran in a, in a positive new arrangement with the West on the nuclear, on nuclear affairs has uh, actually uh, delivered on the expectations that Iran's foreign policy would be sort of become mellower and uh, how do you view in that uh, respect uh, the future of Syria and the possibility of, of uh, Iran gaining a permanent foothold and, and joining basically with Hezbollah and, and uh, and its influence in Syria, and indeed the established influence in Iraq. In other words, how do you view the whole thing? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, we certainly do uh, look upon uh, the Iran deal as um, the best hope for um, bringing Iran uh, into um, the position of being a responsible ideally non-nuclear armed uh, 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 country. Um, uh, we supported the deal then and we support it um, now. I'm not quite sure exactly where the American position has landed on it at the moment, but we will be seeking to um, convince the administration, if they do have any doubts, that this is the, that this is the right deal to, to do. Um, I think um, there's a lot of onus on um, uh, the Iranians themselves to uh, make the most of the freedoms that it, um, uh, well, the, the, the lifting of some of the restrictions that it, uh, that it sort of kind of exemplifies and embodies. And that, that I suspect, has got some way to uh, go. Um, I think that people will have to see um, the benefit of that deal um, for what we know to be sort of kind of longer term um, social pressures to sort of kind of unwind in a, in, a, in a beneficial way. So I think it is early stages. I mean, I, I would say that um, when you ask the question, can you therefore see Iran behaving more responsibly? Um, uh, I, I guess the answer to that is no, not very much. Um, uh, however, I do think that um, the situation in Syria is um, so extreme, and they have chosen to play in that um, in, in, in that arena uh, in a way that means that probably we can't necessarily see it just now. I mean, I think it will be for the next iteration to work out whether or not actually Iran is living up to its side um, of the bargain. Ambassador Bob Hunter. Sorry, Robert Hunter, I used to be at NATO. Uh, could I press you a bit more on Brexit? Um, a lot of it, of course, goes beyond your remit at uh, MOD. But uh, Britain's role within the European Union has not just been 
the kinds of things we read about in the newspaper. It's part of it is to help the balance with the Germans and the French. Part of it is the non-military aspects of dealing with security in uh, Central Europe, including with Ukraine. Part of it's the trade issues within the community, or the Union rather, and across the Atlantic. Uh, I'm reassured by what you said about continuing to take part in uh, European Union military activities when appropriate. But do you really believe, uh, or if you do believe, as you uh, how would you go about being able to punch at your weight, if not even above your weight, uh, if you're not going to be fully a part of uh, the European Union institutions at a time of, of such great stress? Um, I, 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 I don't have a perfect crystal ball. Um, I don't know uh, exactly um, how the UK uh, will be positioned in 10 years' uh, time. I suspect that there will be areas um, where we will feel uh, the loss of EU membership um, keenly. I suspect there will be areas where we will think to ourselves that we have been um, liberated from a whole bunch of things. We're doing a lot of exciting things which otherwise we would find difficult to do. Um, it's the decision, however, that the country has made um, and the resolution of the UK government and everybody who's working in it is to um, make um, the best of that decision, which definitely has opportunities as, uh, uh, as well as um, are things that we need to deal with. Now, I think there are a whole host of areas where um, we are not going to resile from um, our broader European uh, responsibilities. I mean, we've talked about um, security, but actually uh, the issues to do with um, uh, policing across uh, Europe, where in fact actually European partners are um, v very uh, dependent on uh, UK capabilities, are also an area where we are going to play a full uh, part. It is in our interest and it is in their interest as well, and it would be sort of immoral uh, not to do so. So I think that we can sort of kind of take, we can, we can take this idea that the UK is leaving the EU sort of kind of too far, frankly. I mean, there are going to be lots and lots of areas where we're not going to be uh, leaving it. I mean, where um, the UK is going to be in, in terms of sort of being the, 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 the preferred partner into the EU, if that's one of your um, points, well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. We will still be, um, you know, one of the, we'll still be a member of the G7. We will still be um, a powerful and I hope authoritative voice on the world uh, stage. We will have different types of trading relationships. Um, and, you know, who knows what it, Europe itself will look like in a few years' time. In the back. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Andrew Hanna. I'm a reporter at Politico. Uh, in your opening remarks, you mentioned how the United Kingdom was looking to boost European capabilities to counter hybrid threats. Um, and will the United Kingdom help set up the European Commission's promote, proposed countering cyber hybrid threat center potentially in Finland? And how do you make sure that those efforts don't duplicate efforts already undertaken by NATO? Well, um, we are a member of the European Union until we're not a member of the European Union. So to the extent that the centre in question is up and running, yeah, we will certainly be involved. Um, and we have probably the best um, technologists in this area in Europe. Um, and we will want to make sure that European um, security benefits from that. So we will, we will, we will want to stay um, uh, close to that. I would imagine that when we leave the European Union, that may well be one of the types of um, cooperation that we will want to continue, frankly. Um, you know, these uh, wires and cables um, and code do not really respect international boundaries very um, uh, uh, very obediently, and as a result, we need to recognise that as being a transnational threat. That the UK is is personal, you know, national interests are served by getting in, in, involved in. Um, uh, I um, I certainly wouldn't want to see um, duplicated um, uh, capability. 
um, and except insofar as it is in some form or other additive. Um, on that basis, I think that actually the question is more interestingly, is NATO as an organization moving as quickly as it should be into that kind of area? Is it a sensible strategy to leave this to uh, national uh, governments? Um, I think that my instinct on that is probably not, but that's what I think where I would put the, that, the focus of that. Probably have time for one more question. Yeah, I think I think you put them back. Um, let me then just say that I hope as you leave this this room today, you take two things away from what Stephen said in his prepared remarks. First, the enormous military, technological, and scientific capability which the United Kingdom brings to our NATO alliance, and to include systems which are on the cusp of being deployed. The carriers, the F-35s, the P-8 patrol aircraft, um, and indeed in a few years' time, the Dreadnought-class SSBNs. That's the first thing. The military, technical, and scientific support that the UK provides to the only organization which really provides for the true defense of the North Atlantic region against a major power threat. The second thing is the special relationship. There are some of you here today who embody that. But every day, thousands of Brits and Americans are working together in the intelligence field, in the scientific field, in all branches of the military services and the diplomatic corps. They do so as the third or fourth generation of 70 years of special relationship. It doesn't really matter whether the tabloids focus on whether the gift that the president gave the prime minister vice versa was, was adequate in the eyes of the press. The special relationship is unique. It's generational. It's something that all of us have to pass on to, our, to the next generation to make certain that this absolutely unique aspect of the Anglo-American relationship continues. So, Stephen, thank you for being here. Thank you for your remarks and for what you've brought to us here. And please join me in thanking Stephen.